Well, throughout this book, Solomon labours the point about the vanity of life. If an unbeliever, living as they do in the wilderness of this life, considers the world around them, they should conclude that there is no meaning in life. For the few people who do reach that conclusion, life can become almost unbearable. While people are immersed in the lights and the, the sounds of all the, this world's distractions, they can enjoy a measure of happiness. But those who are able to stand back and take stock of all that they have done and all that they are currently doing, they are left stunned. One unbelieving friend of mine came to this conclusion fairly recently that there really was no point in man's existence and he concluded that he may as well kill himself. Now, he, he hasn't done that yet, not successfully anyway, and I don't think he ever will, but it does show us what can happen when people wake up from the dream that Satan has placed them in, in this life. Solomon is not quite in the same position. Now, I, I should admit to you, getting into Solomon's head isn't easy. I'm not sure I've figured out exactly where he's coming from. Now, as I've said to you perhaps before, some Bible students, while maintaining their belief that this book of Ecclesiastes is part of Holy Writ, they almost, they write off the book largely, doctrinally anyway. They say, Solomon is in a state of utter confusion, and we should therefore take little notice of what he says. That's not how I view the book. I think it's full of doctrinal goodness, uh, even if we sometimes glimpse you know, Solomon uh, feeling despair sometimes. Why I think Solomon is different from my friend is that I believe Solomon is, uh, is, a, is a genuine uh, God-fearing man. And I think also he's, in some respects, he's like every one of us. I mean, I've certainly had some of the same uh, thoughts as Solomon. And Yes, I can preach to you easily that it's all about God and serving God, but it, that doesn't mean it's easy for me to look back on, on things in life and say, much of what I've done in life was pointless. There are all kinds of uh, views about Solomon as they try to understand him. So my best guess is Solomon believes in God, but he's trying to view the things of this world apart from God for a while. And he does us a great service because he increases the contrast between the things of this world and the things of God. So as we continue through this book and we see him wrestle with all these issues, I hope you can cut him some slack and, uh, as we consider these things. So the first point I want to speak about is pleasure. It's the first thing we come across in the reading, pleasure. 
our chapter begins with Solomon entering on a big experiment. His aim was to consider a whole raft of experiences and see if any of them had any meaning in them. So here's a list of them. Firstly in verse 3. Drinking. He drunk wine before, but this time it was part of an experiment. Some believe, well I believe as well, that this was, this was done in a controlled fashion. But other people seem to think he just drank too much and got, got bladdered, you know. But um, we look in verse 4. In verse 4 it talks about building. He had the oversight of a number of building projects. His own house was uh, pretty grand. In fact, his own house was bigger than the temple he built for God. Also in verse 4, we see he was involved with horticulture. He planted vineyards and he maintained them so that he, he could allow them to produce plenty of good quality wine. In verse 5, we see landscaping. He created gardens and parks for the enjoyment of himself and his family and hopefully his servants as well. And he planted all kinds of fruit trees. Verse 6, forestry. He not only carried out standard management of woodlands, but he also built reservoirs and built an irrigation system so that the forests could be fed, kept healthy with a supply of water. Then verse 7, servants. He had a great many servants, which means there's any job that you don't like in the slightest, you can hand it over to the servants. Also in verse 7, we see farming. He had a great many Farm animals, presumably cattle and sheep, and uh, this would have given him an unlimited supply of good quality uh, dairy products and meat and so on. In verse 8, he talks about his wealth. He amassed to himself large amounts of money and precious metals and gems and so on. And as you probably know, people find joy in spending money, but some people find joy in simply amassing money. They like the idea of becoming more wealthy. Verse 8, we have choirs. He employed male and female singers, and that allowed him presumably to organise large, you know, where... Uh, musical and choral performances. And also in verse 8, women. Women. He married hundreds of women and had girlfriends on top of that. I don't know how he coped. First Kings 11 and 3 says, he had 700 wives. <laughs> word. Who were princesses. And... 300 concubines. 
Well, given all his possessions and his achievements, he honestly thought that he was the, the best king ever. He still had the wisdom that had been given to him by God. He could do almost anything he imagined, anything he thought would give him pleasure. And he'd had a great time. Variety is the spice of life, as they say, and this man had been involved in some very interesting projects. Then, he says in verse 11, then I stood back and considered it all and realised all was vanity. All which excited him at the time, vanity. All the sensual pleasures he enjoyed, vanity. All his vast wealth, vanity. Here's the second thing he looks at, wisdom. Wisdom. Now I know Solomon has already spoken about wisdom. I mentioned there were different types. There's an administrative ability, which is called wisdom. There's a wisdom in understanding people. Uh, there's also a, a sort of a perverted type of wisdom that we see uh, in the, the, the world, uh, in people who don't know God. When it comes down to it, Solomon, he knows that wisdom is a good thing to have. Because we read in verse 13, we read in verse 10, it's better to be wise than unwise. And that applies to unbelievers too. They're better off if God gives them a measure of wisdom than if he just leaves them in darkness. But not even wisdom itself escapes Solomon's analysis. He looks at wisdom itself and he concludes that not even being a wise person can bring meaning to your life. Why? Because the wise man, just like the foolish man, is going to die. Verse 15. What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Verse 16. How the wise dies just like the fool. Verse 16. Of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come all will have been forgotten. Previously, I've pictured for you a typical man on his deathbed. He considers his, his wealth or his achievements and suddenly realises the worthlessness of it all. I suggested to you there will have been many, many people on their deathbeds who will have wondered what was it all about. Over the past few weeks, I've been in regular contact with a friend of mine whose who's, who's, um, brother had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And uh, his brother actually passed away over the Christmas period. And his brother, uh, Steve's name was, he was, a, he was a wealthy businessman, he was a millionaire. He and his wife went on all kinds of holidays and fancy and cruises or anything they could wish for. Steve had a season ticket for Liverpool. You probably don't think that's a good thing, brother. 
but he had, he had a VIP box, you know, one of those fancy. And how much that cost? They had nice cars. They had a, bought a plot of land up a hill in Cheshire and built their own massive house. And it was when he realised that he was on his deathbed, everything changed. He was now staring eternity in the face. Now, how important do you think all that wealth was him was to him at that point? How important do you think it was? Mm. He was a lifelong atheist. He ridiculed every attempt that my friend made to uh, witness about Christ. But when it came down to it, and the vanity of life hit him in the face, it was my friend, his brother, that he asked to see. So just hours before Steve left this world, just one thing was important to him. He said to my friend, will you teach me how to pray? Now, that type of deathbed experience is it's, it's common enough, I'm sure it doesn't surprise you. But are we not just a little bit surprised that Solomon on his deathbed will have wondered even what the point of having wisdom was, which is, which is a good thing. You see, death was coming anyway. Not even the righteous can escape it. Here's the third thing Solomon considers hard work. Hard work. In verse 18, Solomon, again, can hardly believe that when he dies, all the results of his life's work will be given to someone else. And there's no guarantee that the one who will inherit, or the ones who will inherit everything, will be wise. They could turn out to be stupid or irresponsible. Karen and I are members of uh, a group called English Heritage. You heard that? They own lots of, uh, hundreds of uh, castles and country houses all over England. And sometimes we read about the history of, of, of some, you know, some country house, some, some estate. And you read about how each generation, um, they, they pass the estate on to their children, and they pass it on to their children. And that can work successfully for hundreds and hundreds of years. But all it takes to ruin everything is just one rogue, someone who wastes their inheritance on uh, dodgy investments or gambling or worse. And so, unable to afford the upkeep of the estate, they're forced to hand it over to some charitable trust or sell it to a foreigner. So, no wonder Solomon thinks, why bother? Why bother? But, it's not only the risk that some, uh, you know, some irresponsible child will squander their inheritance. Solomon seems to think there's something unfair in a child inheriting great wealth that they haven't worked for in the slightest way. Verse 21 says, Sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything 
to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Now look, if someone's children, any of your children, are genuinely in need and you can help them by leaving them some money, that is a good thing. We find it, examples of it in the scriptures. But it's a different matter when um, people are leaving vast sums to children who already have money and their own house and you know good jobs. And I'm thankful that a lot of the Lord's people instead they choose to use a bit of wisdom and maybe you know give it to a missionary you know instead or something. But then again, if someone made that wise choice and said they, they don't need it, I'm gonna send it to the to Barnabas or, or some other charity, can they be sure that the nature of that organisation won't change after they've gone? It could become corrupt, it could become apostate. So just when you think you've chosen the better option, there's no telling what will happen in the future. <clears throat> Added to all his other considerations, Solomon realised that the very intelligence and the skill he used in achieving all he did would also be lost forever. When Solomon died, all those good qualities died with him. I have two more points for you, and this is the first one. Solomon's message to the lost. This is how I perceive Solomon would Communicate to people who are outside of Christ. Okay. The preacher, the preacher Solomon, he presents a powerful message to the people of this world. I wish, I wish the people of this world could read Ecclesiastes alone, even if nothing else. Because Solomon looks away from God for a moment to see if there's any real value in the things he'd done and all the things he tried. It's as if Solomon is telling them, look, have a look at what I've tried, will you? He's tried drink, hobbies, environmental projects, music, philosophy, money, and girls. And all was vanity. All was vanity. Based on my own experience, I find, uh, I find that we become too too uh, consumed uh, too quickly with things in this world pleasures in life I've wasted far too much time on stupid things but one advantage of that stupidity is I can see where Solomon is coming from I can look back on so much of my life and realise it was vanity we're surrounded by people in our families and friends in circles who fill their lives with pointless things and none of it can provide what is needed because the things of this world are unable to bring deep and lasting satisfaction the things of this world are unable to help with a guilty conscience and the things of this world cannot solve the problem of man's sin. The Apostle Paul weighs in 
on this point in Ephesians 4 and verse 19. He talks about the people in this world who have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every type of impurity. Well, back here in verse 22, Solomon reminds us about the sorrow which fills our lives. And then in verse 24, he suggests people at least try to find enjoyment in the things they do before they die. They won't find meaning in those things, but God nevertheless allows them to have some happiness. I thought that was a strange statement. Bad advice. Later on in this book, we'll come across Solomon apparently advising young people to just go out and enjoy yourself. Go on, just go and enjoy yourself. But he quickly follows on from that and says, but hang on, remember, there's a judgment coming and you will be accountable for all that pleasure-seeking that you were involved in. And so that is a classic example of Solomon being sarcastic. He's telling young people to go out and do whatever they want, but he doesn't really mean them to do that. It's sarcasm. And it's for that reason I'm always on the lookout in Ecclesiastes for other examples where Solomon uses sarcasm. And I suspect there's a hint of it at least in verse 24 when he tells people to just go out and, you know, it, it, it's as if God is saying to those people who are determined to live independently of God, Solomon's saying, fine, go and enjoy your life without God. You know, you have a few simple pleasures. Perhaps you can find some enjoyment in what you do before you die. Well, if that's not a clear enough message to the people of this world, let's listen to what Jesus says. There's a man speaking who's got plenty of money, you know. Luke 12, verses 19 to 21. And I will say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. So Solomon has a message to the lost. And finally, we, let's consider Solomon's message to the redeemed. If you know Jesus as your saviour today, I thank God for it. I thank God for his great grace towards you. God targeted you. God targeted you and by his spirit he made you willing. Willing to seek him, willing to lay hold on him. And so verse 26 there, the one who pleases God, that describes you. You, friends, please God. Does that not make you feel all warm inside? You know, knowing how much better you are than the sinners of this world? Does, does it not make your soul feel elevated, knowing just how good you are in the sight of God? Well, 
If it does make you feel like that, then I have some work to do. I have to convince you that you are deluded because you and I sin. We don't just sin now and again. We sin every day. And we don't just sin every day. We sin throughout each day. I hope you're with me so far. Now, if you think I've exaggerated there, if you think I've exaggerated your sin, you think I've gone a bit too far, I suggest you're in trouble. That you don't know yourself and you don't really know God. But let's assume that you, you know, you, you accept that you sin throughout the day. You, let's assume you know how serious it is to God. Let's assume you know that your behaviour is a sign that you, you're taking your salvation for granted. Now, I, I, with that said, I need to press this point home. Listen carefully. God does not enable you to live righteously so that he can then look at you, be impressed, and then accept you on that basis. That's pure Roman Catholicism. And that is not, I suggest, what we should be thinking. I need to emphasise that if you are accepted by God today, it's because you have been given the very righteousness of Christ himself. It means that God is able, if you like, to to look on you and see all the wondrous perfections of his own son. He can see your sin, all right, but he views it as forgiven in Christ. Look again at verse 26. This is how, then, you and I are able to please God. In redeeming us, he makes new creatures out of us. When he looks down and sees the goodness of Christ in us, it blesses him. Solomon lists there some of the things God gives to us, his people. He gives uh, to different degrees, but we all receive of them. And each of them can be viewed with reference to Christ. He says there, verse 26, he says we receive heavenly wisdom. We fear God. We submit to him. This wisdom we get from, from God, it enables us to understand the gospel, which, by the way, is an idea which evades some of the most brilliant minds in our world. And if we have Christ, we have the one who is elsewhere described as wisdom personified. So we, we have wisdom. We also receive heavenly knowledge. Through God's word we gain knowledge. Not just the facts of the Bible, but the truth be, behind the facts. And it's in this way that we're expected to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And apart from heavenly wisdom and heavenly knowledge, we receive heavenly joy as well. Solomon's just said, life is full of sorrows. But the strange joy that God gives to us 
means we're able to somehow find contentment even in very trying circumstances in life. That joy, it's not something that is always obvious. Don't think the person who is always smiling like, like a lunatic is the most joyful in the Lord or not. So uh, sometimes I smile, sometimes my joy comes out of smiling and happiness and other things. Sometimes the joy is more subtle, it's a little bit low key. But the point is, when you get to know a brother or sister Christian, you will, after a short while, be able to see if they have the joy of Christ in them, or they are bad-minded or bitter. Those people who accept their vileness and they present themselves to God in a state of humble submission become pleasing to God and then receive these things like wisdom and knowledge and joy. If you read on in verse 26, I'm sure you spotted this, it sounds a bit strange. Solomon describes a world where sinners do all the work, but the children of God reap all the benefits. <laughs> I can't relate to that one bit. So, let's look at what's said from Solomon's perspective rather than ours. Solomon is aware of all those great stories from the past, like, you know, the Exodus and the taking of Canaan. And I'm sure he was impressed with these. Remember that the Hebrews left one country, Egypt, and were given wealth by the people. They were given wealth by the people on the way out. And on the way in to the new place, when they cleared out Canaan, all the spoils of war came to the Hebrews. So I think Solomon would have seen that as quite a, a normal and a, and a good way of God working. And let's not forget, Solomon was a bit biased. Solomon did experience this in his own life. It says here in 1 Kings 4 and 21. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So, um, in his experience at least, uh, the heathen did bring the fruits of their labour and give it to God's man. But I'm sure Solomon didn't think that was the normal experience for God's people. It's possible Solomon was thinking more from a gospel perspective what do I mean? In the parable of the talents, Jesus pronounces a quite shocking judgment. From this man over here who was bone idle, didn't have much money, he takes all that away from him. And then he gives it to someone who already had plenty. It seems a bit like almost unfair. But Jesus is making it clear that there's a spiritual message in there. It's about really the end time judgment and the world which comes after it. At the judgment, the people of Norris Green, the people of Liverpool, the people of the UK, people from all over the world are going to stand before God. Now the majority of those people will have spent their lives on that broad road of sinfulness 
which was only ever going to lead to their destruction. In this life, they didn't want the most important thing of Jesus Christ. But they had something at least, you know, they had experiences, they had food and clothes, they probably had some kind of family relationships they enjoyed, uh, some will have even had plenty of money. Yet, that pittance will be taken from them. They'll be stripped of every material thing they owned, they'll be separated forever from everyone whose company they enjoyed. And even the very feeling of, you know, just being alive will be taken from them because they're going to face a future where they are conscious, but it can hardly be called being alive. There's another group at the judgment. By the grace of God, they found themselves on a narrow way, a way which involved being ridiculed in this world, a way which led to them being discriminated against. But it was a path which was always going to lead to eternal life. They spend, will have spent their lives in spiritual abundance. Regardless of whether they had possessions or not, regardless of whether they had family and friends or not, they had Jesus Christ. They had the most important thing. Anything above that would be just trimmings. And in the parable, Jesus teaches his hearers that these sheep of his, even though they already have God's riches in Christ, would be given more. So in the parable, at least, it's the picture there is the world being stripped of its wealth and that wealth being given to the believers. Ultimately, all which exists belongs to God anyway. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. It's all his. And at the judgments we're going to see a, a redistribution, redistribution of things uh, that we've uh, never seen in history. Quoting Jesus again in Matthew 5 and verse 5 he says, Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now the meek is another name for God's people. I fully expect that God is going to renovate this world and turn it into a glorious paradise. And all of us who belong to God will have full and free access to that world forever. All is vanity says the preacher. We can't find purpose in our existence through pleasure-seeking or living wisely or working hard to get money. What is the meaning of life? 
What is man's purpose? I couldn't put this better than what we read in our old uh, catechism. Man's greatest purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. All is vanity. But here's something which isn't. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Amen.